Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Sports Medicine on Tap. I'm Jason Kopech coming to you live from Neck of the Woods Brewing Company here in Pittman, New Jersey. Dr. Frey, how are you making out so far today? I'm doing great, Jason. Good to see you, buddy. Glad to be back. We got a great topic tonight. Um, you know, and it's a it's a topic that's uh, an unfortunate part of sports, um, spinal cord injuries. And uh, we brought in, you know, an expert to help us out with us tonight. Who do you have? I have Dr. Bob Greenleaf, uh, spine surgeon extraordinaire. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. Big fan of the show. Dr. Greenleaf, can't thank you enough for joining us tonight. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, uh, like I said, thanks for having me on. I've listened to a lot of episodes. Very entertaining. I learn something new every single podcast. So great, great thing you guys are doing. So keep it up. I myself, I'm, I was born and raised in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm not Amish. I get that question a lot, you know, at running water and vehicles and everything. Uh, from Lancaster, went up to uh, Cornell. Uh, I, I played baseball, football, wrestling growing up. That's my sports background. Continued to wrestle up at Cornell. Then went um, went down to med school in Philadelphia. Went out to Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh for my residency. That's where I met uh, Dr. Frey. It's where he was a oh, fellow, yeah. sports fellow. He used to steal cases from us junior residents. <laughs> and so, you know, it, mixed feelings until I got to know him a lot better. Um, and then from, from Pittsburgh, went up to Boston, Mass General, uh, Brigham and Women for my spine fellowship, and then came back down to the, uh, the Philly area uh, to join Reconstructive Orthopedics and, and haven't regret uh, a day since. Have a family and three kids. Uh, we, we live here in South Jersey in Morristown. Cornell's uh, pretty decent at wrestling from what I hear. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, we, were, uh, we were pretty good when I was there. Uh, they, they really stepped it up. Uh, after I left, I like to try to take credit for it. There's a kid named Travis Lee. He was this kid from uh, Hawaii, and he came up on a recruiting trip. And it had been many, many years since we had a national champion, like nobody to really put you on the map. Mm -hmm. And then this kid comes in. I kept on the recruiting trip. Uh, he ended up coming to Cornell as a two-time national champion, just this little, just beat up on people. So that, that you get those kids that, that, that put you on the map, and everybody said, oh, look, this Ivy League, you know, has a, a powerhouse wrestling. I can be a national champion and go to Ivy League. And it just it just grew and grew from there. And now, uh, yeah, they're a perennial top five, top ten team, uh, really strong program. Dr. Greenleaf, I got to admit, full disclosure, uh, you know, spinal cord injuries are one of the toughest things that uh, we as athletic trainers have to deal with. And, you know, unfortunately, I've seen my fair share of them uh, covering various sports throughout my time. And uh, we had another unfortunate one uh, back in November with the Little Flyers organization, a 17-year-old, um, Brian Page, um, you know, a, a catastrophic injury on the ice. Um, what, what do you know about that injury so far? Yeah, well, I, I, Jason, I couldn't agree more. The, these are catastrophic is the right term for them. Uh, fortunately, we don't see them commonly, certainly not as much as you know, knee injuries and ankle injuries, but we certainly prepare for them because they are so catastrophic. And that, and that initial treatment, that assessment, getting the right, the right assessment, recognizing the problem and following the protocols and that early treatment is, is just so important in, in giving these uh, athletes and non-athletes, anybody who suffers spinal cord injury, the best chance of, of recovery. Brian, uh, as you mentioned, 17 year old, he's from Delaware, but he was traveling on a hockey team up in this area uh, and, and took, a, took a hit to the head, uh, a compression injury, causing a fracture, causing a spinal cord injury. And then kind of the typical steps after that was rushed to tertiary uh, trauma center, had emergency surgery. Uh, he's been, as you can imagine, with a, a good motivated 17 year old athlete, has made strides in his recovery, but uh, he had what we defined as a, a complete spinal cord injury in the beginning, and the prognosis for, for those injuries is, is, is typically pretty poor as far as regaining uh, good function back. Now, it's, it can literally be years until we really see how much function will come back if more spinal cord levels re return, get meaningful recovery. But Brian's a, Brian's a tough kid. He's got a great, uh, great family, a lot of great resources behind him. So, so we're really pulling for him. At 17 years old, do you think he stands a better chance at some recovery than uh, a similar individual who has this uh, has this injury, um, you know, 10, 15 years later in life? 
Yeah, no, see, that's a great point. The younger we are, the I like to use the term, it's it's kind of the more plastic our neurologic system is. You know, whether it's a spinal cord injury or a concussion or any any type of neurological insult, you have a better chance to recover and more, more potential to recover. A good example of that, a good comparison to that comes in with when we think about spinal cord injuries and deficits from spinal cord um, insults, that's what we think about. We think about sports. We think about motor vehicle accidents, falling downstairs. The truth is, far and away, the most common reason for spinal cord injuries is degenerative problems. It's arthritis that we develop in our necks, just like you develop arthritis, bone-on-bone arthritis in your knees or your hips when you get in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. You get the same type of thing in your neck. You got to remember the, the spine, the cervical spine, the lumbar spine. It's just like dozens of joints stacked on top of each other. And they get arthritis, they get bone spurs, they get swelling, and they start to encroach on and compress the spinal cord. And you don't really know it. You, you, you feel like you're aging, your, your balance is off a little bit, a little bit of tingling in your hand. You say, well, that's, that's just the way I'm put together. But then these patients, they have a, a minor injury, a fall, a whiplash type of injury, and then they suffer spinal cord injuries. And that's, that's what we deal with day in and out, day, day in and day out uh, in the hospital. Those patients, to your point, uh, those patients have less potential for recovery for sure than the 17-year-old does. Yeah. From everything I saw in the reports, he fractured his C5, C6. You know, I also saw some, you know, other details about, uh, you know, some other trauma to C4 and C7, along with some spinal cord bruising. Could could you touch on, you know, just kind of summarize what that all means? Yeah, well, I, some of it's speculation because uh, for sure I, I didn't see his actual imaging. Yeah. I didn't actually treat him, so I, I don't want to sit here and say, hey, specifically had this right. slip, that slip. But sure. typically what happens, you have these injuries and there's a, a bruise to the spinal cord, like you said, the swelling to the spinal cord. That typically can travel up and down the spinal cord. So from the initial area of injury, that swelling, that bruising goes up and down. So I would anticipate on an MRI scan, he would have bruising all the way up to C4, like you mentioned, the main area of injury, C5, C6, and then go down to C7. Now the C's stand, C stands for cervical or, or the neck bones, and they, they count down from the top C1 up at the base of the skull down to C7, which is kind of getting down between the shoulder blades. So he would have bruising and swelling there, and that's... And that's the kind of the golden couple hours of treatment here. And, and, and that's why he's going to be rushed off. He most likely had emergency surgery right away, first and foremost, to stabilize the spine, because that's what basically happened. Our spine, which is meant to carry a physiologic load, meaning holding our head up and let us run around and do what we're supposed to do. Um, this injury caused a, a, a fracture and instability, meaning the spine basically crumbled on itself. If you think about like the bricks of your house, um, if the bottom layer of bricks down at the bottom of the wall, if you crush them or set a little dynamite off at the bottom, what's going to happen? The whole wall is going to collapse from the top down, and that's what happens with the spine. So they, they would stabilize the spine. Sometimes it takes multiple surgeries, sometimes surgeries through the, both the front of the neck and the back of the neck. So that's number one priority, stabilize the spine. And number two is get all that pressure off the spinal cord. You're trying to create the best possible atmosphere, the best scenario for healing of the spinal cord. So first and foremost, you stabilize, you get the pressure off the spinal cord. Then it gets into some of the more complicated sides of it, the medical sides of it, where we try to increase the blood pressure, increase the hemoglobin levels, the perfusion of the spinal cord. Um, that's where we get into steroids and other medications, which are very controversial areas. In fact, so controversial, you almost don't want to talk about them because it literally from month to month, literature research and paper to paper, one says this and then the next one contradicts it and says we do this. It's it's just such a such a tough area. And, and in the future, you know, we get into some areas like stem cell research. We, you know, you guys in, in sports and a lot, a lot of. Uh, a lot of potential in the future for stem cells. I mean, stem cells are smart cells, you know. They, they're the type of thing you, you take them out and you stick them in the pancreas and they look around and they say, oh, wow, you know, I'm in the pancreas now. I'm, I need to start producing insulin and, and glucose and things like that. Uh, we're hoping that at some point we can take those out and put them in the spinal cord and they'll look around and say, oh, wow, I'm in the spinal cord now. I need to produce new spinal cord, new new undamaged spinal cord. So I think that's the where we have the most potential in the future. From everything I saw, I mean, you, you're actually 100% accurate. So he, he had surgery within six hours of the uh, original injury. You know, from what I see to date, he's had four additional surgeries. Um, what dictates how long in between each of those surgeries? Um, or, you know, is, is there a, uh, a timeline on when each of those other four had to be done? 
Yeah, and, and again, the same um, same disclaimers before. I, I right. don't know what specific surgeries had he, he had to undergo that um, that Brian had to, had to undergo. Uh, as I mentioned before, sometimes you need to do combined front and back surgery. Sometimes in the middle of the night, this kid shows up. It it could be one o'clock in the morning when you're starting to do a surgery, and I don't care where you are. No, no situation is optimal one o'clock in the morning from a surgical standpoint. Yeah. The surgeons. You know, they're not as fresh as they are at 8 o'clock in the morning, the staff, et cetera. So sometimes what you do is you do a temporary stabilizing surgery. Say you do a surgery through the front of the neck. You get most of the pressure off the spinal cord. You hold things nice and still. You let the patient rest a day or two. Let those things I mentioned before uh, optimize, like the blood pressures, start some medicine, start some steroids and other medicines. And then you come back a couple days later for another revision procedure. Uh, or come back and do a, a surgery through the back of the neck. Um, there are other good examples of spinal cord injuries. We, we, we all obviously know Peyton Manning well, and he, all his trials and tribulations through, through his surgeries. What people know less about is his older brother, uh, Cooper Manning. You know, and he was going to be the first big Manning. He was down at Old Miss following, following his dad's footsteps, and he was going to, he's the new Archie Manning. He came in through, went, went to college in his freshman year, was noticing weakness and atrophy in his hands, took a hit once, and he was, uh, he was temporarily paralyzed. Some argue um, that he was the best athlete of the bunch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and he's the first kid, so, you know, we've all been there. You know, the first kid, you give the most attention. You're like, oh, this, is the, this guy's going to carry on my, my legacy. And he went and, and he had imaging done and he had congenital stenosis, meaning he was born with less room for the spinal cord in his neck than quote unquote average. And he underwent surgery. And I bring up that point because he had lots of problems after that surgery, he had wound healing problems, had infections. He had multiple surgeries. He woke up from surgery worse than he was before he went into surgery, meaning he was paralyzed after surgery. So. He was very, very touch and go uh, for a long period of time, and that's why he had to have multiple surgeries. Dr. Greenleaf, when you uh, are, are on call and have to perform these types of surgeries, and maybe this gets a, a bit personal here, at what point do you know the patient's age? It's an interesting question. Uh, you know, these days, everything is so electronic. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so I'm at home, uh, you know, if I'm on call. Unfortunately, where we work here in, in the community, Mm -hmm. uh, settings in, in, in the South Jersey community settings, we're not getting those calls certainly as yeah. frequently. Right. You know, if you, you're in a high-level accident or, or a car accident or a sports injury like this, most of those are going to the tertiary centers. But you know, within a few minutes, I can I pop open my laptop and I'm on on uh, on the computer and I can see everything there is to know about them: the age, their medical history, their backgrounds. I see far less spinal cord injuries from sports injuries and car accidents as I do from other causes such as infections, abscesses, and tumors. We do a lot of cancer care and uh, patients with that develop cancers, most common breast cancers, prostate cancers, these types of cancers, it's very frequent they metastasize and send cancer cells to the spine. And these will start to compress the spinal cord and you run into the same issues where these patients develop weakness and numbness in the arms and legs and are becoming paralyzed, tetraplegic or paraplegic, and they often need emergency surgery. Those surgeries typically you do the next morning. You don't have to do a lot of those in the middle of the night. I just can't imagine uh, that that feeling you guys get when you, you find out you're, you're doing a 17-year-old uh, mm -hmm. emergency you know, cervical surgery. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's. I'm not, I'm not sure at what point you get past that and just go in there and it's business as usual, but um, it, it sounds like a, it's a tough pill to swallow a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and your heart breaks and you just, mm -hmm. you kind of, you know, you can put yourself, we've all been there playing sports in high school and college, and you can put yourself in those situations. And most of us have kids coming up through and our kids are only a few years off of that. So, yes, yeah, so certainly it, you, those are tough pills to swallow, like you mentioned, but, but also... After you do these things long enough, you kind of realize, look, you, know, you have to do the right thing for these people. Right. You have to treat them. And maybe this sounds not as empathetic as it should be or you know, not as heartwarming. But in truth, you're really treating a spinal cord. And you right. need to do what you, what, what you can do to optimize the chance of that spinal cord healing. And, and you know, they're, they're difficult conversations every age group, whether it's 17 or 57 or 87. Sometimes those are the hardest conversations because you, you look at the patient, you look at the family and say, look, this is a big surgery. If we don't do anything, you're going to be paralyzed. If we do do something, who knows if you'll survive surgery or, or get through the rehab process. It's going to be a year of recovery. And those are 
frankly, those are the most those are the most difficult conversations because it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario. Yeah. So, truth be told, with this with this particular show, we've kind of reversed our our standard format. Right. Typically, we talk about a professional athlete, the injury that they have, its current injury, and that sort of leads to this jumping off point about conversations about that particular injury. This show, we were talking more about a local athlete that most people probably wouldn't know about, um, but but it was a local injury, local athlete. But then applying that on the on the grander level, right? Mike Gutley, way back '90s, um, the, the thumbs up as it comes off the field, regained the ability to walk. Right? Um, there was uh, a few others. Uh, Dennis Bird, mm-hmm. I believe, regained the ability to walk. I think he has since passed, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Everett had a uh, Buffalo Bills similar type of injury. Again, a, a pretty, um, sh- I guess, early recovery or a surprising recovery early on, and that brought up a whole lot of controversy about like hypothermic treatment and whatnot. And then, yeah, and yep. then more recently, Ryan Shazier again regained the ability to walk, danced with his wife at, at, at his wedding. You know, is that? typical is that standard is there something different about these individuals or the care that maybe that some of these guys have had uh, potentially better results than than some other people who have these particular injuries yeah steve that that's a great point and, and it's it's a good case in point with kevin everett which you, who you mentioned the 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 uh, tight end from the buffalo bills and that that injury got a lot of traction a lot of attention because of of the hypothermia so right. To your point, yes, this is a high-level athlete. He's in the best shape of any athlete going. They're kind of a perfect specimen coming in, and they have this injury. They're on the field. There's an ambulance parked 50 yards away. There's a hospital two miles away with an operating room sitting there waiting for him. Yeah. So so he receives this elite-level care. And, and, again, the controversial part with this is is they, they quickly cooled him down They, they between cold IV um, saline infusions and cooling blankets, they got his core temperature down several degrees lower than normal with the hope that it could decrease the swelling and inflammation of the spinal cord. Mm. He had emergency surgery. He was in the OR within an hour or two. Uh, he had an incomplete injury, and that's where it gets really uh, really difficult and really gray because a complete right. injury, and again, it's hard to define these things. Complete injury, the prognosis is much, much more poor. Uh, an incomplete injury, meaning there's a spinal cord injury, but you still have some levels of function in the arms and legs. Maybe just assume maybe you lost 50 or 70, 75% of function and movement, but you're not completely paralyzed. Those patients always have a much better prognosis. So Kevin Everett went through all this surgery, all this elite care. He got better. He was highly functional. And the surgeon uh, there, Dr. Cappuccino, yeah. uh, he basically said, hey, look, you know, this is evidence that uh, hypothermia works. And you say, well, maybe it was those other nine or ten, you know, optimal primary treatments that he got that, that made him get better. So that, that's where it's so controversial. You know, to really prove something in all of medicine, you need these large, double-blinded, randomized perspective studies. And how do you do that? How do you take a 1,000 Kevin Everts and 500 you do hypothermia and 500 you don't to yeah. really get that? You can't. You know, it's, 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 it's so hard. Um, kind of along those same lines was uh, Adam Talaferro. You know, right. he, he's a, he's a, a local guy. Um, you know, he was decided, did you want to introduce him a little bit or do you, do you want me to talk oh, about him, Jake, yeah. Jason? Yeah. Yeah. So Adam's a great guy and uh, his whole family is just wonderful people. And he's he's just a phenomenal story. I mean, kind of one of those Rudy type stories where it's just a tearjerker and it's, it's motivates you so much. So Adam, Adam is a, a local guy here at Eastern High School and Voorhees was a high level athlete. Jason was just telling a um, a story here about how he used to run circles around him in basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Adam ran yeah. circles around Jason. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Vice not versa. the other way around. Oh, <laughs> okay, that way. Okay. Well, yeah. okay. well and, and so Adam was a great athlete. He went to Penn State, and unfortunately, his freshman year, uh, was making a tackle uh, against Ohio State and had a spinal cord injury. And had an incomplete spinal cord injury. Same things we've been talking about. Had emergency surgery, a lot of treatment. He was over at McGee Rehab for for months and. He was one of those guys that gave a very poor prognosis. He said, they said, it's very unlikely you'll have good function. You'll probably end up in a wheelchair forever. And, and Adam beat the odds. And he worked his butt off. And McGee did a lot for him. And now he's functional now. And he's doing everything under the sun. Went and got his law degrees and politics. He's just, he's just an absolutely amazing story. And he and his family started a foundation in the area called the Adam Talaferro Foundation. And then that's, then that's what we do. And um, we work to 
provide resources, mainly financial resources, but we do education as well for athletic trainers, you know, such as Jason, to, to learn how to recognize and treat these spinal cord injuries. Dr. Greenleaf, uh, you mentioned that in quote unquote, they gave him a poor prognosis meeting Adam. Uh, very curious, who, who is they? Um, is that you, the physician? Is that his training therapist? Um, who makes that prognosis of the percentage of likelihood that he'll walk again or, or any type of spinal cord injury? I'm sorry. Sure, sure. I, I think those, and that, that's so difficult because those questions come up right away. I mean, just imagine. I'm sure immediately, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, what are you going to say? If you're the parent that's uh, waiting in the, the operating room out there with your kid in emergency surgery, what are you going to ask? You're going to yeah. say, well, how's he going to do? How's he going to do? You know, is he going to walk again? How sure. bad is it? How bad is it? Uh, and those are so hard to predict early on. But but early on, it's going to be the spine surgeon that probably okay. has the best guess at those. Yeah. There'll probably be neurologists involved, physiatrists, which are basically their, their physicians that have a lot of background in physical therapy and rehab. Those are going to be the folks that um, can sort of quote unquote, make the best guesses early on. And that's based on just intuition, based on history, based on the MRI findings, what kind of function he has there early on, how much he can move things around. And again, their they're best guesses, and sometimes we're wrong. And sometimes it's nice when we're wrong uh, in a good way. You know what I mean? Can you speak a little bit more about the Adam Talaferro Foundation? Yeah, sure, sure. So it, it's, uh, again, it's, it's just a, it's a great foundation. It's made up of, uh, there, there are a couple of guys that started it, uh, Tom Eichavone and uh, Gus Ostrom. They're just amazing people um, that, that do really the brunt of the work. And it's made up of committee, a uh, committee of, um, in the 15s or 20s, uh, of folks involved, kind of like myself, that, that are just trying to they, they've been fortunate enough in life that they have the time and the resources and the connections to really try to help other people. Um, where, where do they commit their resources? What's the main goal of the foundation? Yeah, exactly. So the, the typical the typical patient that we help out, and, and I hate to say patient because they're no longer patients, they're people trying to get back to life. And that's right. what you have to remember when you have these spinal cord injuries. This is a catastrophic injury, not only to the person suffering their injury, but what you don't realize is how it affects everyone around them, their family, their husbands, their wives, their parents, their kids. I mean, this, this turns everyone in that equation's life upside down in a heartbeat. And you go through, you, you go to the hospital, you're spending days and weeks in the intensive care units and having lots of surgeries, and then you're months in the recovery and the rehab areas. You come home. You're just gonna come home and you know jump on the couch and be fine. No, you're, you're refitting your entire house. You're building ramps. You're getting new cars because you need they need to accommodate your wheelchairs. Uh, you're redoing your whole kitchen, your whole bathroom. So your lives just come up, uh, you know, are turned upside down. And needless to say, insurance companies aren't gonna pay for all this. You know, we don't we don't want to you know make insurance companies only look like the bad guys, but. Guess what? They they don't pay for a good chunk of this stuff, and these patients come out with tens and tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills that they need to try to get their life back in order. And a lot of these patients, you know, we talk about the Kevin Everts and the NFL players and the athletes, these right. people that had all the resources built in. Most people ain't like that. Right. They're they're people that live paycheck to paycheck, you know, working just to get by and pay the rent, and suddenly you come home and you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills. That, that's catastrophic in every every way imaginable. So, so, so what we do is patients come to us, and and we, we work a lot with McGee because we see a lot of spinal cord injury patients come out there. But any anybody can can come to us for resources, uh, and we help give financial support to, to help pay for these things. So, you know, the, by far the most common are. Uh, our, our regular wheelchairs we think of. So essentially what the insurance companies will do, you come out with these injuries and they say, oh, you need a wheelchair. Okay, pick one, an electric wheelchair or a regular standard wheelchair. And of course, you're going to say the electric wheelchair because they're more expensive and more complicated. But guess what? Electric wheelchairs can't go everywhere. They're big, they're bulky, they're heavy, they're not maneuverable. So you need a standard wheelchair, and those are four or five thousand uh, dollars. So they'll come to us and say, "Look, insurance company didn't cover this wheelchair. Can you help with that?" So wheelchairs are very common. Um, showers and shower chairs. We we have another lady that works through the foundation. Her name's Mary Schmidt. Uh, she she's awesome. She has so much energy. She's helped so many people. 
you know, her, you know, she'll smack me for saying this, but, you know, every month she comes to us and says, hey, guess what? We have an insurance company that doesn't think this patient needs a shower anymore, so they won't pay for their shower chairs and X, Y, and Z to, to be able to take a shower. So so we, we pay for those types of things. So the shower, the the, the new, new fittings for the, the bathrooms and the kitchens and wheelchairs, those are very, very common awards that we, um, we give to these patients. You know, I think it's pretty striking. First, it's that a phenomenal thing to do, right? And then and, and I think it's wonderful that you're you're part of that and you, you help out with that process. Clearly, we call these catastrophic injuries for a reason. They're life-altering, life-changing. And I find it very interesting that a number of the athletes, the professional athletes that I just named, as they go through this process, create similar charities and create similar foundations, right? Mike Utley created his Thumbs Up Foundation. Ryan Shazier recently created a foundation. You know, he had said that he would be in physical therapy five days a week. And he saw other people who had the same injury or similar injuries, and they would come in once a week, maybe twice a week. And he would talk with them and ask them, why, you know, why are you not coming as frequently as I am? And frequently the response was, insurance wouldn't pay for it. I didn't have a ride to physical therapy. Like, like a Mm. lot of these other limitations. And he just felt as though... You know, once someone goes through something like this, your status or what you did in life shouldn't be the determining factor. Like, we're all basic humans at this level, right? And, and we're, we're, we've lost some of our basic faculties, our, our you know, ability to carry out activities of daily living, and we should all get the same sort of advantages. So he's created, you know, he's created a foundation to try to even up the field, to try to help those who aren't able to cover it for themselves or, or, or whatnot, similar to what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, it, it's sort of anyone who's had the misfortune of going through this difficult situation, I guess their their eyes are open to just what what's truly important in life. And, and you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing that, that people who go through this then want to give back and want to help out. Yeah, absolutely. And those are good examples you gave at Adam's Foundation. Eric Legrand is another mm named that uh, a lot of people in Jersey remember. He From was Rutgers. at Rutgers, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, remember he, he had a, a spinal cord injury. And I remember it was a cool story, too, how um, his coach was the Bucks coach there for a minute, and they drafted him as a Buck for oh, just yeah. basically a day. Yeah. So so we could say he was in the NFL yeah. and had his number. What I think the had his heck number was his name? The coach. The coach? Yeah. Yeah, he bounced around a little bit. Yeah, he, he was, was, he was uh, great at Rutgers. Uh, Shabano, exactly. Yep, yep. So, yeah. So, so Eric started the same thing, and actually, in, in some cases, we try to work symbiotically with with Legrand's foundation as well. He's yeah. a little bit more up in North Jersey. We've tried, you know, since Rutgers got into the Big Ten, and Adams got a story at Penn State. Yeah. Right. We were, and this is another maybe pandemic, um, um, uh, you know. Good, crushed by the pandemic, but we were starting to try to work symbiotically with them. Can we get together when Penn State plays Rutgers and and oh, try yeah. to, you know, try to have whatever it is, you know, oh, man, a big party before, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, you're right. You're right. The people that are able to give back, it's, it's great when they can. Yeah, I agree, Steve. How would somebody like me, Dr. Frey, just the everyday person, is, are there ways to get involved with the Adam Talifero Foundation? Yeah, you bet. It's it's we have a website at talaferrofoundation.org. Uh, um, we do a, a lot of community events, and in fact, up to, just in the, the end of this month on the 26th, we're we're having uh, annually we do a, a, a football. In the past, it was a football game, a formal formal football game with uh, with the high school um, all stars, and kind of yeah. anybody who came up through Jersey probably knew about it. Yeah. You know, the high school high school seniors, the, basically an all star game, the Talaferro game. Yeah. It was a big deal. We switch gears a little bit uh, to make it more of a, um, a seven-on-seven uh, flag competition. It's a good kind of early warm-up. You send your skill players out. Um, historically, we did it down at Rowan. Some things change. We want to kind of personalize a little bit, so we're doing it this year on the 26th uh, over at Eastern High School where, okay. where Adam went. And, you know, a lot of high school teams in South Jersey will come out, and it's, it's, a, it's a great event. Um, but that's just one example of some of the things we do in the community. I mean, it's... You know, anybody's. We're always happy to get people involved on this on this board. I mean, like I said, it's not a, a glorious position. It's people are just putting putting in time and resources and trying to give back. So I don't think there's ever been somebody that we said, "Eh, we're not going to vote this person onto the board." No, we we take anybody. So don't you don't you worry. I'm going to change gears just a tiny bit. 
two things I was hoping to get uh, your opinion on. Um, the first one is hockey player for the Buffalo Sabres, Jack Eichel, and um, he's sustained a, ne- a neck injury and it's become a little bit of a controversy. And he's got uh, you know pain going down his arm. Sounds like a herniated disc. He wants to go a surgical route. Um, some of his doctors have been treating him. They've been recommending going non-operative, and he's sort of at odds with with the with the Buffalo Sabres organization and the NHL overall. And I guess there there is a process in place where you can appeal where he wants a certain treatment. And he's not being basically being allowed that treatment. And this may get a little bit off topic, but I do find it very interesting. That, that then it goes to arbitration, and he can choose a doc to be in his arbitration. The Sabres get to choose a doc who will be in his arbitration, and there's a third doc that's, I guess, an independent choice or maybe the NHL choice, and they get to decide. If they decide, even if he wants to go down a surgical road, if they decide non-operative, that's what he has to go with. And Or if they decide operative, even if the Sabres don't want him to do that, that's what he gets. Before we get into the, 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 the controversy of that system or the controversy of that all of that, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that injury, herniated disc, and, and what what that means, and how is that different than what we've just been talking about in terms of spinal cord injury? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, all good points, Steve. And, and that, that scenario, it sounds eerily similar to workers' compensation, right? <laughs> right. You know, and that's oh, that's what, yeah. what we deal with all the time, yeah. and it is. Yeah, see, you think of workers' compensation as your construction, you throw your back out. Uh, these guys, they're working too, and that's their job, and they have owners of that businesses, and, and you know, there's insurance and agreements and contracts on the line, so it's, it's a big deal. Um, but what you mentioned with, with the cervical disc herniation, so yeah, essentially what you can think of, of it as is there's different degrees of injury. So spinal cord injury, obviously, a complete spinal cord injury is obviously the worst one, and that's where you have an injury to the bulk of the spinal cord. There's swelling, there's damage, every single nerve, every bit of neurologic fiber from there down low in your body is going to quit working. The, the highway so, is closed. Highway yeah. is closed, so nothing can get down. It's like you filled that tunnel up with stone and nothing's ever going to get through. An incomplete injury is, is you filled the tunnel up a little bit, so some light can get through and maybe a little bit of work you can get around and get through the tunnel. Hard step is going to continue with this analogy to a, a nerve root injury. So <laughs> the, the exit maybe ramp a little, is closed. Yeah, the exit <laughs> ramp. There you go. So it's not just closed off there. So an exit ramp is kind of blocked off. And that's and the nerves branch off of the spinal cord and they go down the arms. And and uh, and from the tone here, it sounds like we're belittling it like, oh, it's just a little nerve root, especially when you put it beside these spinal cord injuries. But guess what? L- little nerve roots, they, they hurt like hell. Yeah. And anybody that's had a, a pinched nerve with, with real what we call radiculopathy or nerve pain into the arm or the leg or sciatic as we as we know it, they're going to tell you nine, nine times out of 100, they're going to say, that was the worst pain of my life. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. I wanted to chop my arm off. Hear I wanted to chop my leg off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they say. So it's it's terrible pain. So. Uh, you know these NHL guys. They're you know they're some of the toughest guys you'll ever meet. I mean they they got a screw loose and they they're they're hard <laughs> hard guys. But I don't care how tough you are. Nerve pain is 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 debilitating pain. You know and the analogy I give a lot of Tiger Woods. You know with all his nerve injuries. You know remember seeing him crawling down the fairway on all fours. You know on national television. That's how bad nerve pain can be. So. First and foremost, I mean, that pain, when that hits, you're an NHL player, football player, you can't play through that. You absolutely cannot play through that. There's no blocks to do that. There's no injections can, that can just make it go away or cortisone shot at halftime, anything like that. It's, it's debilitating pain. You cannot play through it. To get into some of the issues he's getting into, probably come the, the, the tough, touchy area here is going to be, so if you have surgery, which almost... It usually involves a fusion. Now there are other uh, situations where you don't. I'm under the impression that he, I think he wants a disc replacement, and, mm-hmm. and which, which to me, you know, my, you know, I'm not a spine surgeon, right? But mm-hmm. my my limited exposure is, yeah. especially in the cervical spine, that in, in, a, in a contact athlete, that might not be the best choice. Yeah, so uh, correct. Super controversial. I mean, sometimes you try to avoid hardware altogether. And a, and a, and a cervical disc replacement, like you mentioned, you kind of think of it as like a little knee replacement in, in the disc, in the spine. So you avoid the fusion, the F word, a fusion. Right. So, um, you know, <laughs> and, that, and, that's, that. yeah, and that's where you have the hardware, the screws, the plates, the bone graft, and, you, and you're waiting months and months to make sure the bone fuses, and then you're worried about that fusion placing more stress on the levels above and below and then those are all the things you get into and obviously you know with a with an impact a collision type of sport like hockey that could become an issue now 
maybe the nice thing about that is the disc replacement, the theory behind that is it maintains motion. So it doesn't put as much stress on the levels above and below. So that may be a safer way to go. Other times you try to avoid the, the hardware, the metal altogether. And you can try to do just a simple decompression. Those are smaller, more minimally invasive surgeries that you often do through the back of the neck instead of through the front of the neck. And those kind of came popular with Peyton Manning. Remember, he was with the Colts. And yeah. he had uh, that whole family. Obviously, he's got some congenital neck problems. But he had two or three minor surgeries from the back of the neck trying to unpinch nerves, and, and they didn't work. In yeah. the end, he had to have a two-level fusion through the front of the neck. Yeah. And that's why the Colts dumped him, because yeah. you know, he, he just had a bad neck. And he had so much weakness in his arm, he couldn't throw the damn ball. 15 yards. When, yeah. when he first started playing for Denver, it looked like he could barely throw the ball. Yeah, 20 yards. Like, yeah. And he had to throw way out in front of people because he couldn't throw with, uh, with remember, any zip. Remember poor Emmanuel Sanders and yeah. uh, how quick he was? Oh. I mean, he'd get, he'd get the ball and throw it as far as he could downfield and it would still be 10 yards behind I mean, Emmanuel right. Sanders, right? Of course. Of course. Um, hey, he did catch up, though. He did, he did, it did come around. He got better. He yeah. got better. But he was at a he was at a low point. I, I read some things about him where he was, and this was kind of underground. He didn't want to let everybody know, but he couldn't throw a ball 10 yards. He right. was so much weakness and atrophy in the C7 nerve root and the triceps nerve root. Yeah. So, so he had the surgery. He had a two-level anterior cervical discectomy infusion, and that's the, the plates and the bone graft and everything like we just talked about. And he came back and played football and won, won a Super Bowl. Right. You know? so, so that's where you get into the controversy. Mm -hmm. After you have this type of surgery, can you come back to collision sports? Right. And the conventional thinking is if it's just a one-level fusion, in most cases, if you're neurologically intact, you, you know, you kind of have to read, read the right act saying, look, you know, you're not ideal, but I think you can play. Two levels of fusion probably can still play three levels of fusion which is a lot of fusion in Starting your neck to lose motion and whatnot. yeah and and that's a lot of a long lever arm in your neck those are the ones that historically have been told look you should avoid collision in contact sports so so in in response to uh jack eichel expressing some of his frustration i think with the team overall uh, his gm uh, right was, they, they were had a real bad season yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and was, i'm sure that plays into things a little bit of course of course right right and, but one of his responses was that this surgery has never been done in the NHL before. Now, truth be told, I'm not sure if he means disc replacement or cervical fusion. But it was my, it's my impression that cervical fusion, clearly in professional sports, has been done before. We know about it in the NFL. But it's also my impression of that it's been done in the NHL before. Are, are you aware, I mean, and you may not know, but are you aware of anybody who has mm. had this particular procedure within the NHL? I, I don't, but I, I would be floored if people didn't. Because right. there, there are a lot of lot of pro athletes, NFL, Ultimate Fighting, you know, that, that have these surgeries done. So I, I'd be amazed if they didn't. They didn't if they didn't, yeah. So now, now that's the fusion, kind of the gold standard. Um, the the arthroplasty uh, again I'd be surprised there too but because arthroplasty is there there your spine's stable I mean you can still play with those things they're just as stable as your normal disc is so is that very, right yeah yeah I remember back to my my residency days which was a while back and you know when this was a fairly new procedure and a few people like spitting them out and, and some major issues associated with them but again mm -hmm. that's that's at this point you know 15 years ago and things things have probably changed over that yeah period of time. technology and techniques I think have improved and we always hear about the you know the the, the failures of, of course but um now it, it's it'd be an interesting point you know on, on another uh, podcast you can have me back and i'll, I'll give you some good, sure some good literature and research on that one yeah. or i may i'll figure out something really good to make up for you <laughs> i can't help but wonder because you know I, I feel like i've been in these situations before where there's a little bit of controversy um for, for somebody like Jack, 24 years old, uh, captain for the Sabres, pretty substantial contract, you know, albeit told for from an NHL perspective. Do you think that he was perhaps just told, you know, whoever his treating physicians were, were just trying to tell him that they, they personally didn't think it was the best treatment option, and therefore he, can, you know, took it as they were trying to get out of doing the procedure? Yeah, and and again, you know, to sound like a broken record, but you know, it would be really nice to see his MRI and, right. and the degree there's because there's so many things you have to judge these on. Yeah, how how large the herniation is? Is it involving the spinal cord? How how do the levels above and below look? Does he have neurologic deficits? Does yeah. he have weakness and those types of things? So you, you really that's the art of medicine, really having to figure all those things into it, and then, and then talking to him from a a personal perspective, what his goals are. I mean, does he want to 
get better and play hockey for 10 more years. I forget how long he's been in the league, but does he want to get in there? And, Four or five and, years, I think. And, and play and, yeah, yeah. Right, so he's I mean, got a long he, career. But he just signed an eight-year contract, yeah. I think. He just signed a monster contract. That's yeah. like every physician's probably going to have you know, their own take on it. And whoever he may have saw may have just been like, I don't think this is the best thing for right. you. Right. And like I said, I've, I was kind of been in these situations where then he's immediately like, well, they're just trying to get out of the responsibility of it. And it's like, well, not necessarily that this treating physician Maybe just the doesn't think, yeah, it, just, it may not be your best option. Now, somebody sure. else may think it is, and this guy may think it's not, but um, I, I feel like that's always where the controversy comes from. It's just, you know, maybe some communication issues. Now, now Bob, yeah. can I, I'm going to take it in another direction, and this is going to piggyback off of some of our conversation from last week. Um, we, we talked a little bit about Chris Paul and, and what appeared to be a stinger, and he went down and, you know, he was out for, you know, a quarter, went through a little bit of a workup, and he was able to come back in and play. How, how is that different, right? Jack Eichel has what appears to be herniated disc, but now we're talking about a stinger and you're able to come back and play. What's the difference there? Yeah, so so stingers, we, we've we've all sort of heard about. If you watch enough sports, if you watch enough football, and you see somebody running off the field, holding their uh, arm down limp like they can't move it around, you know, that's t- typically what we call a stinger. Um, stingers can involve the brachial plexus or the nerve roots. If you have a stinger in both arms, that's a problem because yeah. that implies something involving the spinal cord. So anything going down both arms, both legs, that's a big problem. Anything only going down one side, a little less urgent right there. So a stinger is, is typically uh, what we call a neuropraxia, a stretch to the nerve roots. And it's often when, uh, the, it's often a tackler, this is the classic example, and when their neck gets stretched to one side, and if you, say if you reached up and you grabbed your head and you pulled it to one side to kind of do a stretch like you do, if you kind of stretch it too far too quick, that could stretch what we call the brachial plexus. It's the it's the kind of spider web of nerve roots when they come out of the neck and before they go down into the arm, and it's and it's a it's an area that can be injured and stretched pretty easily. Um, so a stinger is in those situations the the, the player's got to come out, and in many situations within a few minutes it goes away, and that's the criteria to get back to play now. Certainly, if I was in high school and this is a first-time stinger for a patient, they never had any neck issues. That kid ain't playing again. That game, mm-hmm. he's gonna, he's gonna sit out. And you're gonna take his helmet and throw it behind the bleachers, and he's not gonna play anymore that day. And he's gonna get checked out by a specialist. Mm-hmm. Now, if they for a com- first-time stinger, yeah, yeah. If I, they're better in ten minutes or whatnot. If, if that there's no history of it, it's never happened before. I, I wouldn't say that kid could go back and play. I go in a different direction. I just didn't yeah. know, and yeah. I just didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I wouldn't. For, first time that type of situation. I mean, you're never going to err uh, on the wrong side. Right. You know, your parents sure. come up to you after the game. What if he has another stinger? And what if that night his hands numb? And mm-hmm. the parents are saying, "What were you thinking? This, yeah, this, this could be a cord injury." And you'd say, "Well, probably not, but I'm going to be sure. Yeah. I'm going to be sure." Now, if you and typically that would be imaging the neck. You look at the MRI scans, and that's where you pick out some of these bad situations. Sure. There's an entity called a spear tackler spine, where your spine is a little straighter than it should be. That sounds like a good thing to have a straight spine, but remember our spine from the side, it's shaped like a big lazy ass. It should be curved. So the normal forces, the, if, you, if you say you hit with your head down, the normal forces can absorb that load better than a spine that's basically too straight up and down or even starting to bend the other way down forward. And that's a classic picture. When you go back to football, you know, in the 60s and 70s, what, what do you do? Head you, you put that, you, you got a hard helmet. And remember, that was one of the worst things that could ever happen for spines and pro sports is to go from the soft helmets to the head, to the hard helmets, because now you, you truly had a spear. That's, that's why I call it spear tackle spine. So you put your head down, you try to run over everything. In the late 1970s, they started changing some rules about how you're allowed to tackle. I feel like that probably took 20 or 30 years to really start to make a difference because it essentially had to infiltrate all the way from, you know, Pop Warner and the little guys all the way up to actually teach the right way to tackle. Uh, we tried to protect from sp- from stingers and nerve injuries by putting the rolls on. Remember back right. in the day, you know, I can still remember watching Penn State football growing up, and yeah. all those guys had the big huge white rolls, rolls on, huge rolls on. So, but yeah. you know, and studies show that maybe it helped a little bit from side to side. So it might have cut down a little bit on stingers, but it didn't help at all if you put your head down and you had that axial compression right on the top of your head. So. In the end, people with common sense probably said, look, this actually made things worse because it makes you feel more invincible. You got this hard helmet, you got these tubes of foam wrapped around your neck. Now you're a real battering 
Yeah. I mean, you just went out there and tried to run over everything with your head and probably did more harm than good in the long term. Dr. Greenleaf, well, this has been very informative. Uh, this has been a great segment. Um, I know Dr. Frey's got a little uh, ace up his sleeve for a final guest for this evening. Sure, um, yeah. Um, but uh, Dr. Greenleaf, I want to thank you for jumping on with us tonight. Um, I think now's a good time. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back and wrap the episode up. All right. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, I'll come guys. back anytime. In the meantime, we're joined by Frank Price, co-founder and brewer here at Neck of the Woods. Frank, thanks for joining us again. Uh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Frank, last time we had you on, you gave me a uh, off-topic rundown of where Lot P got its name from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a Philly born and you know born and raised guy myself. Uh, would you mind talking to us a little bit about Lot P? Yeah, Lot P. You know, if you're looking for that perfect tailgate beer that's crisp, refreshing, low in alcohol, then La P. Pilsner from Neck of the Woods is definitely your beer. La P's been our tailgate home for 20 plus years. Hey, Philadelphia fans, no matter what season, what Philadelphia sport team, or what lot you tailgate in, La P. Pilsner is for you. And welcome back to Sports Medicine on Tap. Uh, Dr. Frey and I have uh, gotten a refill on our beers here. I got another good as hell's. Dr. Frey, what did you go with? I went with Kolsch. Cole. I, I, I can't seem to try something different. I always seem to stay to what I'm uh, familiar with. I've um, been all over the map today. <laughs> you I have went, been all over the yeah, map. Yeah, <laughs> I went with a nice sour to start. I went with a nice APA after that. And now, you know, here we are a little further into the show, and I'm starting to sip on a little bit of a Kolsch. Have has anything you ever had here not been great? No, every single time it's awesome. I'll tell you that IPA um, uh, was. I'm not. I'm not a huge IPA guy, mm -hmm. right? They're super bitter. Do you know why? Do you know why IPAs are bitter? No. So as the story goes, as far as I know, IPA Indian Pale Ale. Um, so so it's really beer that was made in in England, in Britain, and shipped to India. But in order to preserve it, the bitters, the, the hops, are uh, an excellent preservative. So they would load up these particular beers with hops, and it would get to India. This way, the beer wouldn't, wouldn't go bad on them. But that's why they're, they're so hoppy. They're loaded with beers so that they can survive the trip from England to India, and that became a very tasteful form of beer. Me, in particular, I'm not a huge bitter fan, but I have to say that that IPA that I had the I Got Juice IPA. It was probably one of the best IPAs I've ever had. Interesting. Earlier in the segment, again, we had the fantastic Dr. Robert Greenleaf on. Uh, we were talking about spinal cord injuries, but uh, Dr. He's all right. <laughs> Dr. Frey, I alluded to you having a little ace <laughs> up your sleeve. The one thing that we have seen with this podcast so far is we have not run into a shortness of topics to talk about. Sure. Uh, you have something else before we wrap up for this evening. What do you got for us tonight? All right. A good buddy of mine, Alex Strauss, a psychiatrist, works out of Morristown. Uh, or lives in Moorestown, and we wanted to bring him in to talk a little bit about what's going on with Naomi Osaka. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting uh, news this week when uh, she first had uh, come out saying that she didn't want to speak uh, following her match, and then the uh, administrators uh, fined her $15,000 and then threatened to disqualify or her to suspend her in the future. Uh, she came back the next day and ended up uh, withdrawing from the uh, French Open. Um, and then for the first time, I, I believe, posted uh, a pretty lengthy uh, Instagram message indicating both that she's dealt with long bouts of depression since 2018 and then also uh, describing her difficulties with social anxiety. Alex, has this been somewhat of an issue lately? Do you think, you know, I think people view some of these athletes and they think, you know, they're on top of the world, they have everything, um, they make lots of money, their lives are perfect and easy, and when someone comes out and, and expresses that, you know, that maybe it's not so perfect or they're having issues, um, one, it comes across, it's hard for, for a lot of, you know, kind of the average person to understand, number one, and number two, have you seen more of this or uh, a rise in, say, depression and anxiety really over the course of the last year since, since COVID really turned everything upside down? You know, th thank you, Steve. I, I think you bring up a couple of good points, and I, I think that a lot of people 
really look and idolize um, athletes, and especially somebody who's a, a four-time champion and number two ranked player, you think that they kind of have it all. But oftentimes you kind of forget that these are, these are humans, right? So uh, as you can imagine, uh, if you're at the, the top of your profession, you uh, would like to keep it there, but there's also a lot of people who would also like to take over your uh, top spot. And so that creates a lot of pressure. And also if you're a public figure, uh, you get a lot of uh, people who love you, but also a lot of people who hate you. It sounds like uh, for Naomi, you know, there's a lot of things that have been going on. She uh, had won the U.S. Open in 2018, I believe, beating like a longtime hero of hers. And, um, you know, depression can really play significant kind of tricks on your brain and make you really look at the world and what you have in a very negative way. Um, and anxiety and social anxiety when you're forced to be out in the open can also be be very challenging. I think we're noticing a trend to kind of speak to your second question in that athletes and just the general population are becoming much more comfortable with talking about mental illness. You know, I, I think back to uh, the 2006 or so when uh, Zach Greinke, uh, a pitcher for the Kansas City Royals, missed a couple of months of uh, the season due to anxiety and ended up needing to, uh, you know, kind of go through treatment and then also uh, into minor league baseball before he returned to the high levels. But I think the, uh, the great thing is, is only a couple years later, he was a Cy Young Award winning pitcher. So I think it's, it's good to realize that, you know, mental illness is, is definitely very treatable and doesn't have to uh, ruin your career. You know, in speaking to COVID and the impact on athletes, if you think about it, a lot of things have really been turned around. Uh, I work in college programs and a lot of their seasons have either been canceled or postponed or delayed. Uh, training regimes, socialization, all the things that people use uh, for healthy type of coping have not been available. Uh, and so it's, it's been really a challenge for a lot of people with depression and anxiety uh, over the last year and a half. And just, you know, in the general population that I work with, we're seeing a huge uptick of phone calls and referrals and uh, definitely a greater need for uh, treatment that's really available uh, in our region. Alex, do you think these... Uh uh, situations are magnified a bit for professional athletes that are, you know, held under a microscope and, you know, hoisted up onto these pedestals, um, you know, where do you think that they have a, a more difficult time coping um, because of the, the spotlight being on them 24-7? You know, I think that obviously there are a lot of athletes who uh, are able to cope with this. Um, but if you if you think about it, there's a lot of elements that star athletes face that are, are different from somebody in some other high-level uh, position. Because what they need to do is not only you know, manage their general life, um, as well as the training that goes into their athletics, but they also have their, their persona and what people see on the outside. In this case, Naomi had to... Uh, you know, part of her obligation was to speak to the media, right? Like, that's a very challenging thing to do for a lot of people, especially somebody who has social anxiety. And so you, you get pressure, not only necessarily from your work and your sport and your training, but you also might have the same types of pressures from your family, and you can have pressures from your agents, and you can have pressures from, in different sports, your owners and your coaches. And so... I mean, Pressure I feel like the list goes a, on, right? Like, a lot of yeah. different places. Yeah. Um, and to make some people happy doesn't necessarily make other people happy, right? right? So, you know, when people come knocking at your door for money or other things like that, you may feel an obligation to a lot of different people, and then you might have to feel like you have to continue to deliver and perform. And uh, it can feel pretty lonely, too, because there aren't that many people at the elite level who you can uh, commiserate with. I think the perception from the general public is that these people are on top of the world. 
everything is great. You know, how, how can it be that someone is, who's in that position be kind of it in, in the depth of despair, you know, kind of, kind of be in that low and lonely place and very difficult place, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily correlate when you're thinking logically. Um, can you shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, I would ask maybe you the same question is how can someone uh, at top level of uh, any sport have, uh, you know, ACL injury or something like that, right? These are, these are biological uh, issues that affect the brain that don't have necessarily anything to do with one situation. So you could say that even somebody who has it all and maybe has been able to deal with the pressures that come with being on top, maybe biologically, you know, predisposed to becoming depressed. And it has nothing to do with the stressors or their situation. It's just the way in which their brain uh, is not functioning as well as they would like. I think to that point, I, I remember Terrell Owens, um, something was going on with Terrell Owens. And, you know, I, I guess I don't really know the details there, but I think that it was his, uh, one of his, PR managers who then came out and says said something along the lines of you know Terrell Owens has you know 10 million reasons why he's doing extremely well some some ridiculous or ludicrous statement along those lines and 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 I, I just remember thinking you know like that's someone who just doesn't understand this particular situation no you know I, I think you're right and I, I was just you know looking back at, at some of the athletes that have really you know hit peaks and then uh had some mental illness come into play and reading about Ronda Rousey. Um, and if, if we take out the, the head injury component of the sport that she's a part of and just kind of look at what happened. Um, and when she came out talking about mental illness, she spoke about the fact that uh, her father and grandfather had taken their lives to suicide. Right. And, wow. and we definitely see that um, as kind of the, the worst and scariest outcome associated with depression, but also something that can have a, a strong biological predisposition. And the fact that she would have suicidal thinking may have nothing to do with the fact that she is a star athlete or has risk of head injuries and more to do with the fact that she had a father and grandfather who obviously uh, were thinking about and then committed suicide, unfortunately. So yeah, along those lines, uh, a couple shows ago we brought up uh, 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 minor league ball player slash minor slash major league ball player Drew Robinson, who's now playing for AAA affiliate in Sacramento, a AAA affiliate to the San Francisco Giants, Drew Robinson. And just like you're talking about, right, this guy actually went as far as, as trying to commit suicide, right? No one knew this was going on. I have to say, I listened to the statement, or listened to the, the, the statement that Naomi put out, and it's very interesting. She's incredibly polite. She's incredibly uh, de uh, uh, deferential to, the, to the, the powers that be. She completely took the high road. And I wonder how much of that is, is almost lack of confidence because of this, because of this disease and concern. Like, like, could she be heading down that road? She, could she be having those thoughts? You know, it's, it's a pretty powerful and scary thing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, obviously I can't, can't speak to Naomi, but uh, to get to the point that you would step away from the sport where, you know, you're favored to win and number two in the world, um, I think only speaks to kind of the severity and the level of uh, distress that she must be experiencing. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think that she did do her best to communicate her needs. Um, and obviously the, the tour has their own agenda and things that they're trying to accomplish. They did come out with a statement uh, today indicating that they do support Naomi and that they do provide access to, to mental health services for their athletes and we'll, we'll look into this yeah uh, but it, it really does become very tricky i think how much of it do you think was a little bit of a you know what if you're if you're if you're not going to respect the boundaries that i'm trying to set up and, and for good reason um you know what screw you i'm i'm, I'm gonna pull out and, and and uh and and you're gonna have to deal with that yeah i mean i think not knowing 
Naomi very well. It's kind of hard to judge, but I, I think that the the statement, you know, that I need to take care of myself gets a lot more uh, credit when you're uh, the number two tennis player in the world and you step away from a major open, right? Now everybody's talking about mental illness and depression and social anxiety. Which is a good thing. Um, Which is is a great thing. And the question of, you know, should the rules be the same for every single athlete in every single situation? Or, you know, could there be a day or a tournament that if somebody is not feeling well, maybe they don't have to meet all of those obligations? Or do you say we're going to play by the same rules at all times, and if you can't meet all these obligations, then don't show up? Um, but I do wonder if athletes will start just not showing up. Yeah. Alex, if you don't if you don't mind me asking, I didn't have a chance before we uh, hop on the phone with you. Um, are, are you an Eagles fan at all by any chance? I know I know you're living local, but um, you know, be honest. I'm from I'm from Minnesota. Okay. So uh, I am I'm a true Vikings fan. Okay. Uh, amongst the teams but you know my uh my my younger son is definitely an eagles fan so i, I do watch some eagles here and there and uh, yes, was fortunate I, enough to to make the uh the super bowl in minnesota where the eagles won right so that was a cool experience. I, I always feel like i need to ask because I, I know everybody doesn't see things through the same light that i do um I, i'm recalling possibly three eagles Maybe over the last t- 10 to 12 years, um, one being uh, they had an offensive lineman, um, Sean Andrews, who I know battled with uh, anxiety and depression, um, Brandon Brooks uh, recently, um, and I believe, I could be mistaken, uh, but perhaps Nelson Aguilar as well. Um, was one, I remember specifically a game with Brandon Brooks, another offensive lineman uh, recently, was hoping maybe you could talk on just the un- the the unpredictability of these situations. I remember a game specifically where it was announced right before kickoff that uh, uh, he was unable to take the field uh, due to an anxiety attack, and just uh, you know how, how that factors in. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that uh, you bring up a good point, and the the words that uh, Naomi used were these kind of waves of anxiety. Yeah. Um, and she, she was saying that she used different coping strategies like wearing headphones and things to try to distract herself. Um, but yeah, scary things like panic attacks can really occur out of the blue and often by definition do. Um, and people who have panic disorder or panic attacks or things like that they're not necessarily very predictable. You could be going along and playing in a a full season or multiple seasons and all of a sudden have a panic attack before a game or during a game. I think that actually happened with uh, Kevin Love, uh, the basketball player, and he had to leave the court and uh, walk off the court associated with the panic attack. And and so these things are really scary. And part of the, the treatment for mental illness is helping people understand just what that is and the physiology associated with it because really the symptoms associated with panic are very similar to the symptoms associated with you know extreme exertion that you would see in athletes where you see heavy breathing heart racing sweating and all of those things but they happen more out of the blue physiologically than they do as you would expect when you're you're training or or performing if somebody is having a hard time or struggling out there, what, what are there some of the places they can go? What, how are some of the places they can seek out help before before it gets out of hand, before things get out of control? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that in general, you know, people really should be reaching out to initially, you know, friends or family, uh, potentially clergy members or, you know, people who that they're close to who may be connected uh, in the community or in the environment that they can help find them the, the help that they need. I mean, different people need, you know, different things. And um, fortunately, there's all different kind of levels of, of access. Um, in case of, you know, suicide, there's a, a national suicide prevention hotline that from anywhere uh, you can call 1-800-273-8255 and 24-7 in multiple languages, people are available to talk to you. Uh, but also in your community, 
There's many therapists and psychiatrists. Your primary care physician can be a good starting point. Um, and if you're an athlete on a team, you know, sometimes people feel really comfortable talking to their coaches and coaches can have a very uh, good kind of take on accessing the right help for their athletes. And sometimes they want to keep it private. Um, and I think that that's completely fine too. And you can go out and, and seek a, a counselor or a sports psychologist or a sports psychiatrist like myself and, and get some assistance. Alex, we can't thank you enough for uh, bringing your, your unique perspective to this topic and uh, for hopping on and joining with us tonight. Well, Steve, Jason, thank you so much for having me. It was great to be on uh, Sports Medicine on Tap. Hey, I'm looking forward to another conversation, maybe about CTE or God knows what, but somewhere down the line, we're going we're gonna to drag you back in. Is that all right? Let's do it. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Thanks, Alex. Yep. Well, that's going to about wrap it up for this evening. We're going to go ahead and close out our tab. Uh, before we do, we want to thank our sponsors, uh, Reconstructive Orthopedics, with our Focused on You approach, covering all of your orthopedic needs, the Energy Lab, the region's premier sports performance destination, Neck of the Woods Brewing Company, located here in Pittman, New Jersey, for hosting us each and every week. And as always, our good friends at Timber Reel Productions, our on-site producer, Joe Warner, and our editor, Kyle Miller. Thanks a lot for joining this evening, and we'll see you next time.